Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. June 26. On this date in history, in the year 1959, the St. Lawrence Seaway is opened. In a ceremony presided over by U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower and Queen Elizabeth II, the St. Lawrence Seaway is officially opened, creating a navigational channel from the Atlantic Ocean to all the Great Lakes. The seaway, made up of a system of canals, locks, and dredged waterways, extends a distance of nearly 2,500 miles from the Atlantic Ocean through the Gulf of St. Lawrence to Duluth, Minnesota, on Lake Superior. Work on the massive project was initiated by a joint U.S.-Canadian commission in 1954, and five years later, in April 1959, the icebreaker Diberville began the first transit of the St. Lawrence Seaway. Since its official opening, more than two billion tons of cargo, with an estimated worth of more than $300 billion, have moved along its canals and channels. June 27. On this date in history, in the year 1939, the famous scene from Gone with the Wind is filmed. One of the most famous scenes in movie history is filmed. Rhett Butler and Scarlett O'Hara parting in Gone with the Wind. Director Victor Fleming also shot the scene using the alternate line, Frankly, my dear, I just don't care in case the film's censors objected to the word damn. The censors approved the movie, but fined producer David O. Selznick $5,000 for including the curse. The filming of the famous epic was itself an epic, with two and a half years elapsing between Selznick's purchase of the rights to Margaret Mitchell's novel and the movie's debut in Atlanta in December 1939. While the film eventually garnered many awards, it has also drawn criticism for its romanticism of the antebellum South and whitewashing of the horrors of slavery. Filming began on December 10, 1938, with the burning of Atlanta scene, although O'Hara still hadn't been cast. British actress Vivian Lee, newly arrived from London, dropped by the set to visit her agent, Myron Selznick, brother of the producer. David O. Selznick asked her to test for O'Hara. In January, Lee signed on. Clark Gable, Olivia de Havilland, Leslie Howard, and Hattie McDaniel also starred. McDaniel, who played Mammy, the Terra Plantation House servant and formerly enslaved woman, became the first African-American actor to win an Oscar for her performance. June 28. On this date in history in the year 1997, Mike Tyson bites an ear. On June 8, 1997, 
Mike Tyson bites Evander Holyfield's ear in the third round of their heavyweight rematch. The attack led to his disqualification from the match and suspension from boxing and was the strangest chapter yet in the champion's roller coaster career. Mike Tyson enjoyed a rapid rise to stardom. In 1986, he became the youngest heavyweight champion in history by beating Trevor Burbick at just 19 years old. By 1989, however, Tyson had begun a long, downward spiral into sports infamy. His erratic behavior, including marrying and divorcing actress Robin Givens after being accused by her of domestic violence, firing and suing his manager, breaking his hand in an early morning street brawl, and two car accidents, one of which was reportedly a suicide attempt. Tyson also fired trainer Kevin Rooney and replaced him with notorious promoter Don King. Unable to keep his focus on boxing, Tyson, once thought unbeatable, lost the heavyweight title after being knocked out by a 42-to-1 underdog, James Buster Douglas in a stunning upset on February 11, 1990. In 1991, Tyson was accused of rape by Desiree Washington, a contestant in a beauty pageant he was judging in Indianapolis, Indiana. He was convicted on February 10, 1992, and served three years and one month in a federal penitentiary. Once released, Tyson regained his heavyweight belts and then planned about with Evander Holyfield, a clean-living, religious former heavyweight champion from Georgia who was considered the best heavyweight challenger for Tyson after number one contender Lennox Lewis, who Tyson refused to schedule. Holyfield had retired in 1994, but the prospect of a huge payday proved tempting, and on November 9, 1996, the underdog Holyfield shocked the boxing world by beating Tyson in an 11th-round TKO to win Tyson's WBA title. Holyfield came into the widely anticipated rematch on this day in 1997 even stronger than he had been for the first fight. In the first round, he hit Tyson hard with body shots, while Tyson flailed away, ignoring the science of boxing his trainer had promised he would employ. By the end of the round, the crowd chanted Holyfield's name, turning on the usual fan-favorite Tyson. In the second round, Holyfield headbutted Tyson, opening a cut over Tyson's right eye. In the third round, Tyson lost what composure he had left. He spit out his mouthpiece, bit off a chunk out of Holyfield's right ear, and then spit it onto the canvas. Though Holyfield was in obvious pain, the fight resumed after a brief stoppage, and then Tyson bit Holyfield's other ear. With 10 seconds left in the third round, he was disqualified. His $30 million purse was withheld while Nevada boxing officials reviewed the fight. Events in Tyson's life took repeated turns for the worse in the aftermath of the fight and culminated in his declaring bankruptcy, in part, due to $400,000 a year spent on maintaining a flock of pet pigeons and an arrest for cocaine possession. June 29. On this date in history, in the year 1967, the Rolling Stones fight the law, and the law won. Keith Richards, 
sat before magistrates in Chester, West Sussex, England, facing charges that stemmed from the infamous raid of Richard's Redlands estate five months earlier. Though the raid netted very little in the way of actual drugs, what it did net was a great deal of notoriety for the already notorious Rolling Stones. It was during this raid that the police famously encountered a young Marianne faithful, clad only in a bearskin rug, a fact that the prosecutor in the case seemed to regard as highly relevant to the case at hand. In questioning Richards, Queen's counsel Malcolm Morris tried to imply that Faithful's nudity was probably the result of a loss of inhibition due to her cannabis use. Questions from Morris. Would you agree, in the ordinary course of events, you would expect a young woman to be embarrassed if she had nothing on but a rug in the presence of eight men? two of whom were hangers-on, and the third a Moroccan servant? Richards replied, not at all. Morris asked, you regard that, do you, as quite normal? Richards replied, we are not old men. We are not worried about petty morals. With that one line, Richards empathetically established himself as the spokesman for a generation that did not share the values of the British establishment. The charges brought against him by that establishment, however, were quite serious. While Mick Jagger stood charged with illegal possession of four amphetamine tablets he'd purchased in Italy, Richards faced the far more serious charge of allowing his house to be used for the purpose of smoking what the law at the time referred to as Indian hemp. Judging from his defiant attitude on the stand, Richards may not have taken the possibility of conviction very seriously. No marijuana had actually been found in Richard's possession, but on the evidence presented at a trial of a sweet incense smell detected by police, Richards was convicted and sentenced to one year in prison. Jagger was also convicted and sentenced to three months, but he was immediately released, pending an appeal. Richards, on the other hand, was sent directly to Wormwood Scrubs Prison on this day in 1969, where he was greeted like, well, a rock star, by his fellow inmates. Richards would spend only one night in prison, though, as he was granted bail the following day, also pending appeal. His conviction would later be overturned based on the prejudicial nature of the evidence of the naked young woman in a bearskin rug. For his part, Richards was definitively pleased. I like a little more room. I like the John to be in the separate area, he later said, and I hate to be woken up. June 30. On this date in history, in the year 1936, Gone with the Wind is published. Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, one of the best-selling novels of all time and the basis for a blockbuster 1939 movie, is published on June 30, 1936. In 1926, Mitchell was forced to quit her job as a reporter at the Atlanta Journal to recover from a series of physical injuries. With too much time on her hands, Mitchell soon grew restless. Working on a Remington typewriter, a gift from her second husband, John R. Marsh, in their cramped one-bedroom apartment, Mitchell began telling her story of an Atlanta belle named Pansy O'Hara. In tracing Pansy's life from the antebellum South through the Civil War and into the Reconstruction era, Mitchell drew on the tales she had heard from her parents and other relatives 
as well as from Confederate war veterans she had met as a young girl. The story presents a romanticized view of the Old South and does not engage with the horrors of slavery. While she was extremely secretive about her work, Mitchell eventually gave up the manuscript to Harold Latham, an editor from New York's Macmillan Publishing. Latham encouraged Mitchell to complete the novel with one important change, the heroine's name. Mitchell agreed to change it to Scarlet. Published in 1936, Gone with the Wind caused a sensation in Atlanta and went on to sell millions of copies in the United States and throughout the world. The book drew criticism for its whitewashed depictions of slavery. Mitchell nonetheless won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction in 1937, and by that time a movie project was already in the works. The film was produced by Hollywood's giant David O. Selznick, who paid Mitchell a record-high $50,000 for the film rights to her book. After testing hundreds of unknowns and big-name stars to play Scarlet, Selznick hired British actress Vivian Lee days after filming began. Though she didn't take part in the film adaptation of her book, Mitchell did attend its premiere in December 1939 in Atlanta. She died just 10 years later after she was struck by a speeding car while crossing Atlanta's Peach Tree Street. July 1. On this date in history in the year 1997, Hong Kong is returned to China. At midnight on July 1, 1997, Hong Kong reverts back to Chinese rule in a ceremony attended by British Prime Minister Tony Blair, Prince Charles of Wales, Chinese President Zhang Zemin, and U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. A few thousand Hong Kongers protested the turnover, which was otherwise celebratory and peaceful. In 1839, Britain invaded China to crush opposition to its interference in the country's economic, social, and political affairs. One of Britain's first acts of the war was to occupy Hong Kong, a sparsely inhabited island off the coast of southeast China. In 1841, China ceded the island to the British with the signing of the Convention of Chuenpi. And in 1842, the Treaty of Nanking was signed, formally ending the First Opium War. Britain's new colony flourished as the East-West Trading Center and as the commercial gateway and distribution center for southern China. In 1898, Britain was granted an additional 99 years of rule over Hong Kong under the Second Convention of Peking. In September 1984, after years of negotiations, the British and the Chinese signed a formal agreement approving the 1997 turnover of the island in exchange for a Chinese pledge to preserve Hong Kong's capitalist system. On July 1, 1997, Hong Kong was peaceably handed over to China in a ceremony attended by numerous Chinese, British, and international dignitaries. The chief executive under the new Hong Kong government, Tung Chihua, formulated a policy based on the concept of one country, two systems, thus preserving Hong Kong's role as a principal capitalist center in Asia. In 2019, massive pro-democracy protests broke out in Hong Kong over growing oppression from mainland China. Scores of people in academia, media, as well as pro-democracy activists 
have been arrested amid crackdowns. July 2. On this date in history, in the year 1937, Amelia Earhart disappears. On July 2, 1937, the Lockheed aircraft carrying American aviator Amelia Earhart and navigator Frederick Noonan is reported missing near Howland Island in the Pacific. The pair were attempting to fly around the world when they lost their bearings during the most challenging leg of the global journey, Ley, New Guinea, to Howland Island, a tiny island 2,227 nautical miles away in the center of the Pacific Ocean. The U.S. Coast Guard cutter Itasca was in sporadic radio contact with Earhart as she approached Howland Island and received messages that she was lost and running low on fuel. Soon after, she probably tried to ditch the Lockheed into the ocean. No trace of Earhart or Noonan was ever found. Amelia Earhart was born in Atchison, Kansas in 1897. She took up aviation at the age of 24 and later gained publicity as one of the earliest female aviators. In 1928, the publisher George P. Putnam suggested Earhart become the first woman to fly across the Atlantic Ocean. The previous year, Charles A. Lindbergh had flown solo nonstop across the Atlantic, and Putnam had made a fortune off Lindbergh's autobiographical book, We. In June 1928, Earhart and two men flew from Newfoundland, Canada, to Wales, Great Britain. Although Earhart's only function during the crossing was to keep the plane's log, the flight won her great fame, and Americans were enamored of the daring young pilot. The three were honored in a ticker tape parade in New York, and Lady Lindy, as Earhart was dubbed, was given a White House reception by President Calvin Coolidge. Earhart wrote a book about the flight for Putnam, whom she married in 1931, and gave lectures and continued her flying career under her maiden name. On May 20, 1932, she took off alone from Newfoundland in a Lockheed Vega on the first solo nonstop transatlantic flight by a woman. She was bound for Paris, but she was blown off course and landed in Ireland on May 21st after flying more than 2,000 miles in just under 15 hours. It was the fifth anniversary of Lindbergh's historic flight, and before Earhart, no one had attempted to repeat his solo transatlantic flight. For her achievement, she was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross by Congress. Three months later, Earhart became the first woman to fly solo nonstop across the continental United States. In 1935, in the first flight of its kind, she flew solo from Wheeler Field in Honolulu to Oakland, California, winning a $10,000 award posted by Hawaiian commercial interests. Later that year, she was appointed a consultant in careers for women at Purdue University and the school bought her a modern Lockheed Electra aircraft to be used as a flying laboratory. On March 17, 1937, she took off from Oakland and flew west on an around-the-world attempt. It would not be the first global flight, but it would be the longest, 29,000 miles, following an equatorial route. Accompanying Earhart in the Lockheed was Frederick Noonan, her navigator and a former Pan-American pilot. After resting and refueling in Honolulu, 
the trio prepared to resume the flight. However, while taking off for Howland Island, Earhart ground-looped the plane on its runway, perhaps because of a blown tire, and the Lockheed was seriously damaged. The flight was called off, and the aircraft was shipped back to California for repairs. In May, Earhart flew the newly rebuilt plane to Miami, from where Noonan and she would make a new around-the-world attempt, this time from west to east. They left Miami on June 1st, and after stops in South America, Africa, India, and Southeast Asia, they arrived at Ley, New Guinea on June 29. About 22,000 miles of the journey had been completed, and the last 7,000 miles would all be over the Pacific Ocean. The next destination was Howland Island, a tiny U.S.-owned island that was just a few miles long. The U.S. Department of Commerce had a weather observation station and a landing strip on the island, and the staff was ready with fuel and supplies. Several U.S. ships, including the Coast Guard cutter Itasca, were deployed to aid Earhart and Noonan in this difficult leg of their journey. As the Lockheed approached Howland Island, Earhart radioed the Itasca and explained that she was low on fuel. However, after several hours of frustrating attempts, two-way communication was only briefly established, and the Itasca was unable to pinpoint the Lockheed's location or offer navigational information. Earhart circled the Itasca's position, but was unable to sight the ship, which was sending out miles of black smoke. She radioed, One half-hour fuel and no landfall, and later tried to give information on her position. Soon after, contact was lost, and Earhart presumably tried to land the Lockheed on the water. If her landing on the water was perfect, Earhart and Noonan might have had time to escape the aircraft with a life raft and survival equipment before it sank. An intensive search of the vicinity by the Coast Guard and the U.S. Navy found no physical evidence of the flyers or their plane. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for June 26 through July 2. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.